So Shale, I, I sold Shale at the earlier service in case you don't recognize it. He's a, I did chapter 27. He did chapter 20. I'm, I did 27 and 29 last week because it was chronological. So he's doing 28. And just before you think it, he's going to tell you that I stuck him with 28 about <laughs> Samuel rising from the dead. But uh, anyway, like I said in the first service, good luck. But, uh, but no, this really is a message that, um, uh, and that, that God just really spoke through to me in the first service. So I'm going to hang on and listen again. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right, First Samuel 28. If you want to go ahead and turn, as you know, if you're a regular here, we walk through books of the Bible. So we've been walking through First Samuel. I think we started it in January, and we're at chapter 28 today. It's a very interesting chapter. Um, so I'll be as interested as you to see how this goes. But um, while my sister was in college, she worked for an organization, or worked with an organization called Children of the Nations. I don't know if you've ever heard of Children of the Nations, but they have this goal of caring for children, caring for orphans, really, really all over the world, but due to the AIDS epidemic, they spend a lot of time in certain regions of Africa, and they focus on things like education and physical needs and spiritual needs, and then to help facilitate the care, like a lot of missions organizations, they send teams actually into these villages to live among the people. Well, for my sister, you know, that sounded pretty interesting to her. So after her sophomore year of college, she decided to go on one of these trips and she spent the summer in Sierra Leone. Um, and I was pretty proud of her because this was not one of her typical study abroad trips where, you know, you sail around the Mediterranean for a year on a cruise studying, you know, true story. Um, this was this was West Africa. So this was, you know, this is something she really wanted to, to do. No electricity, no running water, living in huts. She actually got malaria twice. Well, I think you can only get it once and it just resurfaced. So she had got malaria while she was there. Um, and I remember we got one phone call from her the entire three months. And it was, you know, back in the mid-2000s, there wasn't a lot of, you know, cell phones weren't as common, especially in developing countries. And so, you know, her ability to get to us wasn't very strong and didn't have electricity. So how are you going to charge a phone? So they had one solar-powered phone that they would use in case of emergencies. And so we get one phone call from her the entire, the entire summer. And out of the blue, my cell phone rings. And it's my sister. Keep in mind, she's been gone six months. I know where she is. I know she's in, you know, the middle of nowhere. And this was Sierra Leone. You know, this is the mid-2000s. Blood Diamonds was that movie. That I mean, it was, I, I didn't know much. I mean, I'd been to West Africa, but I hadn't been to this region, so I didn't know much about this area. So she calls, and she's frantic. And I hadn't heard from her in six weeks. Connection's not good. She's going in and out. She said she'd been trying to get a hold of my dad, couldn't get a hold of my dad. Um, and, you know, so now she finally got a hold of me. She's hyperventilating. And, like, after a minute, I realize that there is a child in the village, and if he doesn't have a surgery, he's going to die. And so she's trying to, like, call everybody she knows. I guess there was a doctor in Seattle where this group is based, and he agreed to do the surgery, but somehow they had to get the child back over to the state state side in order to do the surgery. So he was trying to raise money for tickets and that kind of stuff. And so I'm like, well, what do you need? And she says, you know, I need $5,000. I'm like, are you sure you couldn't get a hold of Dad? <laughs> like, you want to you you try him again? I mean, I feel like I've gotten this email before, right? You know, something about, uh, um, you know, needing a surgery or 
inheritance, needing a cosigner. I mean, am I the only one that's ever gotten that email? Um, but she was dead serious. She did not like my jokes. Um, but a bunch of us, you know, everybody in the team was calling different people. And so I guess the money was all raised and the kid flew back with her team to the States. Apparently, he'd never been in a big city. He'd never been on a plane, never been anywhere. He was freezing on the plane because the AC is going. He never even had AC. So it was, it was quite the experience for him on multiple levels. You know, he's getting into surgery, emergency surgery he needs. Um, and, you know, to see that situation kind of come to completion, uh, it, was, it was pretty cool to see that he could get the care he needed. And so, you know, I'm talking to my sister a few months later about the trip and what had happened. And she said, you know, it was, it was life-changing. It was a life-changing trip in a lot of ways. But, you know, if you asked her to pinpoint, give me one area where you were surprised the most on the whole trip. What was the one area you were surprised the most? And she said, spiritual warfare. She said, from witch doctors to the rituals that people had, kind of the secret rituals, to little statues they would keep with them, to some of the stuff they would put on their kids to ward off evil spirits. You know, a lot of India does that as well, where you're, you know, you're, tr- you're trying to protect your kids. Um, she said, you know, for one of the first times in her life, she could see dark forces. I mean, we always kind of know they're there, but you, she could see them at work. She said one time she woke up in the middle of the night, about six, seven weeks in, she woke up and she just had this really weird feeling. I know that's kind of a generic term, but she said she had this really weird feeling. So she got out of bed and, you know, it was just very uneasy. Got out of bed. They had two huts put together with like a hallway, I guess, in between. So she got out of bed. She kind of walked to the edge, kind of looking down the hallway to where she, you know, kind of saw something. And she said she saw this weird figure was the only way she could describe it, kind of hovering, not really standing, but kind of hovering there. In Africa, if you've ever been, especially out in the bush, it's pitch black. I mean, you, it's really hard to see things. The sky, a lot of times, is your only, your only light. So she said she really couldn't make out what it was, but just kind of hovered there. And she said she just got this real uneasy feeling. She got all nervous, and she said she kind of slowly made her way back to the bed, you know, kind of panic and, you know, sweating bad. And she said she just prayed the whole rest of the night. She felt like that's the only thing she could do is pray. Didn't know what the situation was, but just said, I feel like the only thing I could do is pray. And then she woke up the next morning, and she was kind of telling her team over breakfast. She was like, well, this is kind of what happened and I don't know what's going on and she said a team member of hers felt the exact same thing. Woke up, middle of the night, weird, didn't know what was happening and he said he couldn't even get out of bed. He said he was literally pinned down to the bed. He felt paralyzed the whole night and then he kept trying to get up. The only thing he could do is pray for the entire night and they were obviously you know, freaked out and just kind of wanted to know what to do with this, how to handle this. They were praying through it. Um, they did what any good American Christian would do. They read screw tape letters just to, you know, become more accustomed with um, the darker side of things. But they were talking to their interpreter, who was a local, and they were kind of explaining this situation to their interpreter and just said, you know, here's what happened. And he goes, oh, and like kind of matter of fact, oh yeah, that happens all the time. He goes, those kind of things happen all the time. He goes, we, we call it the dark God. That's how they referred to it, the dark God. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, for her, she's just like processing all this stuff. But as a 19-year-old girl raised in, call it, middle-class America, that experience for her was just a great reminder that there are dark forces at work in this world. Do you believe that? Like, do you believe there are dark forces at work? You know, what was going through your mind when I was telling that story? 
oh, she must have had indigestion. You know, there really wasn't anything there. I mean, you can, you can probably get a feel for what you think and what you believe based on when I was telling the story, how you were reacting in your head, right? Because when the first time I heard it from her, I was like, yeah, I mean, you just, my, my tendency, call it sinful, call it prideful, whatever the tendency is, is just to write it off and say that. But I mean, for her, she knew it happened. No ifs, ands, or buts. People in the village knew it happened. They dealt with it all the time. They dealt with spiritual warfare, the unseen world around us all the time. And we deal with it too. Maybe we just deal with it differently. And so it's, it's definitely there. And today as we dive into 1 Samuel chapter 28, I, I have to think, I know why Jake skipped it. I don't think it has anything to do with chronological. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Give him a hard time. Um, it's got to be one of the weirdest chapters, one of the weirdest chapters in the whole Bible. Okay, because God actually allows the prophet Samuel to be summoned from beyond the grave. Okay, the Philistines are closing in. Samuel, or Saul, excuse me, Saul, King Saul is freaking out. And in a desperate attempt to find out what's going to happen, to be reassured of, I don't know if they're going to win the battle. I don't know what he really wanted to do. But he goes and visits a medium. Okay, and for those of you who aren't up on your magical arts, a medium is someone who supposedly connects people who are living with people who have passed away. And they're, I mean, believe it or not, they're very common in our culture. And I say supposedly because the Bible is very clear that the dead do not speak. Contrary to popular belief, they don't haunt this earth. Right? That's, that's very biblical. And I started researching mediums. There's a ton of them in Tampa. I was reading through websites. Just, I mean, I felt weird at times reading through these websites, but I'm, you know, stalking people on Instagram as their websites say, yeah, well, follow me here. You know, one girl saying, well, as a Catholic, I can really do this really. I mean, it was just, it was very interesting to see some of the things that these mediums were putting on their website. And, you know, here's the deal. I have no doubt that some of these websites I came across, some of these mediums are frauds. No doubt. Just like a psychic, it's probably pretty easy to take advantage of someone. You get a little bit of information and you can, that little bit of information, if you know what you're doing, can go a long way. But I also have no doubt that some of these mediums can actually communicate with the spiritual, with the other, other realm. Okay, I mean, I, I really, I have no doubt. But here's, here's the thing I want you to understand before we leave. We're not going to talk about this long, but before we spend an entire day talking about mediums, I want to make sure we, we talk about it a little bit. Um, here's the thing. When a medium actually connects someone with the other realm, they are not speaking with that passed away individual. They're speaking with a demonic force. That, that's what's happening. They're speaking with, and it may seem that this is real. It may seem that the information you're getting is real, but the Bible is pretty clear that you're speaking with a demonic force. I was talking to Iz Holiday, who's um, a member here, but she also does missions work in um, Italy. And she said that, you know, she was telling me about Italy before she went, and she said that Italy is home to the largest satanic church in the world where she goes and turn Italy. It's home to the largest satanic church in the world. They actually have a festival every year celebrating their satanic beliefs. And she was talking through Italy and just the, the dark forces that are in Italy. And then she also said, she goes, and what's crazy is there's actually more mediums in Italy than Catholic priests. Like that's how 
that's how big this is in certain areas of the world. So why, why do I share all that? Well, first of all, C.S. Lewis says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our faith, our race, excuse me, can fall about the devils. This is actually in the precursor to screw tape letters, so it's written kind of odd. But he said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to not believe in their existence. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. All right, the Bible is very clear that there are spiritual forces at work. Ephesians 6 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And as we, as we dive into this passage today, like I said, it's a really interesting, odd, dark passage. But as we dive in, I want to just kind of stand back and tell you one thing. There is a battle going on for your soul. There's a battle going on for your mind, and there's a battle going on for your heart. And when it seems that like God is not listening, like we're going to see today, you just, you're not hearing from God, you don't know where he's leading, you don't know where he's guiding, you feel like he's not there, the tendency, like we're going to see with Saul, is to go elsewhere. The tendency is going to be to go somewhere else to get this information. I need a word, right? I need a word from God. I need something. I need his direction. I need, and the tendency is going to be to go somewhere else, the, te- the temptation. And now as believers, you may say, well, I would never go to a medium, but maybe you go somewhere else. Maybe, maybe your first instinct is not to go to God and cry out to him like David does throughout the Psalms, your tendency might be to go somewhere else. And we're going to talk through this a little deeper. All right, 1 Samuel 28. We're going to start in verse 3 because 1 and 2 have to do with what we did last week. So verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Now, We're not going to stop at every single verse, but this opening verse tells us quite a bit about what's happening. If you remember, this is a very, 1 Samuel is a very transitional time in the life of the Israelites. They were shifting from a theocracy, which was where God ruled through judges, and they were switching over to a monarchy where God ruled, or the kings ruled, essentially. So you had King Saul was the first king, then you had David, then you had Solomon, and the kingdom split, and so on and so forth. But this was a very transitional time, and Samuel was like a major player. So it's no... There's no doubt that that's kind of how it opens. Samuel had died. Samuel was the last of the judges. He was a prophet, and he was a priest. So if, if I'm an Israelite, and I'm, I'm trying to like know the heart of God, and I'm like, who do I go to? What do I do? I mean, Samuel, last of the judges, he's a priest, he's a prophet. I mean, Samuel is your guy. All right? And right away, we find out Samuel had died. The author is kind of letting us know, look, something has changed. Samuel, Samuel has, is gone. And then at some point, we also find out that Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So at some point, probably through Samuel, Samuel came to Saul and like, look, this is not biblical. It's written in Deuteronomy that you don't deal with these kind of people because they're not, you know, they're not connected with the, the spiritual realm. They're connecting with, you know, the satanic realm. So get them out of the land. Deuteronomy very clearly, 18 says, get them out of the land. So at some point, actually, let's read it. Deuteronomy 18, 9. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or his daughters as the offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or 
one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. In short, God is your guide. In short, God is the one that you go to. Don't consult with this group over here. You consult with God. Isaiah says it, I think, a little clearer. It's Isaiah eight nineteen. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire, inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Why would you go to the dead when you can hear from a living God? That's essentially what that is saying. So now that, that's kind of what the author is introing in verse 3. Samuel's gone. The necromancers, they're out of the land. The mediums, they're out of the land. Saul needs someone. He's not hearing from God. There's not a word from God. He needs somebody to talk to. What's he going to do? He's backed into a corner. Is he going to cry out to God? Like we see, have seen David do so many times throughout the Psalms. Or is he going to do something different? I mean, that's kind of where the author is leading us. Verse 4, The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urims, or by prophets. So Philistines are approaching. Saul wants a word from the Lord. And the author says the Lord didn't answer him. And the author lists three things. Either by dreams, by Urim, or by prophets. And, you know, truth be told, Saul should not be surprised that he's not getting an answer. I mean, if you've been studying with us through this whole First Samuel, he really should not be surprised that he's not getting an answer. Because there is a stark difference between the life of David and the life of Saul. David is continually crying out to God continually crying out to God. I mean, you literally, when he's on this run for 10 years, and most of you don't know that if you've never studied this, David is on the run for Saul for 10 years. And during those 10 years, he writes probably a quarter of the Psalms. And most of them are like crying out to God. God, where are you? I need a refuge. You are my refuge. Like, come and help me. Be my, you know, be my guide. So that, on the one hand, you have David. And there's been a contrast all through 1 Samuel. And on the other side, you have Saul. All right, on the flip side, Saul kind of ignoring Samuel, kind of doing what he thought was best. You know, he would listen. You probably, we probably could all apply this to our lives. Saul would listen occasionally if it suited him. But for the most part, he ignored God. When you read, when you read Samuel, that's what's happening. So, of course, the prophets are quiet. All right, then you go to the Urim. One of the other things it says, it says the Urim. Now, by Urim, by dreams, or by prophets. So the Urim that Saul was trying to use, this is one of two stones. We don't know a ton about it, but there was a Urim and the Thummim. I'm probably butchering both those names, but that's irrelevant. But there's these two stones, and the, the high priest would wear this, this breastplate, and there were gems and you know for all the 12 tribes on this breastplate. And then somewhere around him, he would have these... Do I have a picture of that? Oh, I do. Somewhere around him, he would have these two stones, and they would either go behind the breastplate or kind of under in a pocket. We're not really sure. Um, and what would happen is one was dark in color, one was light in color. And this is a little weird. I mean, it almost goes into a little bit of divination on its own. But the Lord would, you know, the, the high priest would assign meaning to each of these stones if he was trying to figure out the Lord's will. And he would reach into his pocket, whichever one he pulled out. That's, that was the Lord's will for the situation they were in. It's kind of like drawing straws. In the Old Testament, you see a lot of that. You see, you know, think of Jonah. They're drawing straws to see who's to blame. And, and that's the sort of thing that is happening. Um, and like I said, we don't know much about him, but... It, Saul should not be surprised that the Lord is not speaking through these stones because he didn't have the stones. David had the stones. Do you remember what Saul did to the priests? 
Do you remember a few chapters ago when one of the priests was, was helping David? Saul finds out. He's furious. And he sends this guy Doeg into their little town of Nob, I think it was. And Saul has 85 priests killed. 85 priests killed. One priest escapes, Abiathar. He will be with David through all of David's reign. But one priest escapes. He has the ephod. He has the breastplate. He has the two stones. So it should be no surprise to Saul that he's not getting any word from those two stones. All right? And then dreams. It says dreams. God's not speaking there either. And at first you might feel a little bad for Saul. You know, but look what Solomon says, David's son in Proverbs 1. It says, Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. I want you to, I want you to hear this. In the end, Saul can't hear God because Saul rejected God. Right? God is silent towards Saul because Saul has silenced him. You know, and I wonder if I wonder if sometimes we're not prone to do the same thing. I mean, you're going through life, everything's great, God's leading me, God's guiding me, my prayer life is strong, I'm hearing, you know, I'm okay, God's leading me here, He's leading me here. Then every now and then God's like, I want you to go help these people right here. And I'm like, Really? Right? You couldn't get a hold of somebody else, right? Five grand. I couldn't get that five grand from somewhere else. Like, I don't, I don't know that I want to do that. And you say no. Or why don't you go witness to the guy you work with? He's clearly calling out. You know, you've had this relationship with him. I just want you to sit down and have a conversation with him. You know, you know that's where God's leading you. Go share your faith with this person. We've all been there. Whether it's the grocery store. I mean, we've all been there. And you're like, that's uncomfortable. And I don't want to do that. So I'm not going to do that. And, you know, or let's move to this city. Or let's go plant a church here. And we're like, hold on, God. Are you sure? Because that seems a little dangerous. Let's go to Ethiopia. Like, whoa. You know, I don't even know if I like the food there. I mean, it's a little, a little dangerous there. I mean, what am I going to do? I don't, I don't really want to do that. And we don't. And if you say no enough... Don't be surprised if you don't hear him as clearly as you once did. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes the problem isn't that God hasn't spoken. Sometimes the problem is that we don't really want to hear what he has to say. Would, I mean, would you agree with that? Have we, have we all been there? We don't want to submit to his ways. We don't really want him in our lives. So we walk away from the one who loves us and we walk down a path of people maybe who want to exploit us or people who want to take advantage of us and we just walk a different direction seeking something else that we, we kind of want. That's what you see with Saul. Now, just like Saul is about to do, instead of repenting and turning back to God, he looks to a medium to give him what he wants. What is your tendency? I can tell you what my tendency is. My tendency is usually to take care of it on my own. I, I know what I need to do. I know how God is leading. I know where he wants me to go. And my tendency is not to repent. I've been drifting. I've been going different directions. And God's like, come on, let's do this. And instead of repenting and turning back to God, I'm like, uh, I don't maybe not go to a medium, but I might go somewhere else. That's, that's just me. I can't speak for you, but that's what we're going to see Saul do. All right, verse 7. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And the servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and the two men who were with him. Now, interestingly, these guys, Saul says, Find me a medium. And these two guys are like, uh, I might know where a medium is. You know, kind of like maybe they've gone there already themselves. But I mean, they found one pretty fast. So they, they go and they go to this medium. And it says, Saul took off his royal robe, kind of just 
disguised himself. You know, t- and that's important. Takes off his robe. They go in the middle of the night, which I think is probably a little more symbolic as well. And you know, they go to this lady who traditionally is referred to in biblical circles as the witch of Endure. That's what she's called, the witch of Endure. And that's where they go. They came to this woman by night. And he said, Saul said, divine for me by a spirit. Interesting way to phrase it because she's definitely trying to divine by a spirit. And bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know, or the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why are you then laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? She's like... I'm not a medium. I don't even know what you're doing here. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, if I find a medium, I'll let you know. Obviously, she's, you know, she knows she's going to get in trouble. But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Saul's like, seriously, nothing is going to happen to you. I swear. Let's just, you know, interestingly, he swears by the Lord to do something that's clearly forbidden by scripture, which I find very interesting. Verse 11, then the woman said, okay, whom shall I bring up for you? Apparently she's a medium now. Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, so he says, bring up Samuel. She's like, okay, I'll try to bring up Samuel. And then she actually sees Samuel and she cried out with a loud voice. Like she's freaked out. Like, I can't believe this actually worked. She cried out with a loud voice and the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. All right, so it's, you know, what's interesting here is she's obviously, I think, a little scared. She cried out with a loud voice. This is something she does for a living. And when it happens, she's a little freaked out. All right, and, you know, it's probably because something supernatural. You need to understand this particular situation, something supernatural is happening. A a medium normally, since I'm a medium expert, a medium normally operates where you don't actually see the person. They're more getting info, kind of like, well, this is what I'm seeing. Okay, this is what the person has told me. This is how they want to reassure you. This is what they want you to know. Um, So you don't actually see the person apparently. Okay. And so when she sees Samuel, she's, you know, she's pretty freaked out, but here's the thing. God actually uses, I love this because God uses something that is perceived. Well, I shouldn't say perceived, uses something that is evil and he still has dominion over it. God says, I'm going to use this situation, which nine times, 999 times out of a thousand is an evil situation. has no business being, and God's like, I got this. I have dominion over everything. I can do anything I want in any situation. He wants to call Samuel. Let's call Samuel. I'll give him a, we'll really call Samuel. Samuel, come on, up from the dead. Come on, speak to him. You're going to freak everybody out. Freak out this medium. We're going to freak out everybody in the room. And that's, that's essentially what's happening. So verse 13, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a God coming out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? Saul really wants to make sure it's him. And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. I love that they mentioned the robe. Well, that's what she says. Well, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe because the last time Saul and Samuel had spoken, if you remember, Saul comes, or excuse me, Samuel comes to tell Saul that his kingdom is no more. God is taking the kingdom from him and giving it to his neighbor. So when Samuel turns to walk away, remember Saul reached out and tried to grab him and ripped his robe. Do you remember that? He tore the corner of his robe. And, you know, so that's, it's very interesting. They're referring to this robe. And Samuel turns around and goes, just like you just tore my robe, Saul, this kingdom is going to be torn from you. 
And so he, you know, he turns around. And then to make matters worse, you think about Saul and his current situation. He's not even wearing his royal robe. He's under the cover of night. He's someplace he has no business being. He's, I mean, that, this, is, this is how far he has fallen. All right, verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? Apparently, Samuel's just as feisty in death as he was in real life. And so he looks over, verse 17, Then the Lord, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Why? Verse 18, Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Talk about shocking news. You go to a medium to find out what's going to happen, you just find out you're going to be dead tomorrow. Like, I mean, he, he'd probably do what any of us would do. Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. There's no strength in him, for he'd eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul when she saw that he was terrified. She said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him. He listened to their words. So he arose from the earth. He sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread bread of it and she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate then they rose and went away that night so other than the battle the next day this is the last the last we see of Saul We've been studying him for almost six months. And this is the last we're going to see of King Saul. This is his final meal. And I, I, I think it's, I mean, I, I don't think the author did this by accident. But it's very interesting to me that we're getting a picture of his final meal. Because remember when we first met Saul? Remember way back when you first met him? Seems like months ago. Well, it was months ago. Way back when we met him, he was an innocent farmer and he was out looking for some lost donkeys. You remember that? They'd been gone for a few days and just when they were about ready to give up, his servant who was with him said, hey, I know of this guy somewhere here in Israel and he's a prophet. Maybe he could tell us where your donkeys are. So they go, they go to, this, they go to the, his house and they knock on Samuel's door. I mean, Saul is a nobody at this point. They knock on the door and Samuel answers. And of course, Samuel has already been told by the Lord that the guy standing in front of him is going to be the next, well, not the next, the first king of Israel. He's already told him that. So, you know, Samuel or Saul comes to the door and they're like, okay, forget about the donkeys. And they set him down for dinner. And he eats dinner. And Samuel walks over and they give him the priest's portion of the meat. That, that's, where, that's where Saul started. That was one of our first introductions to Saul. He is in the house of a prophet. Everything seems to be fine. He's going to be the next king of Israel. He's eating the portion of meat reserved for a priest. Like that, that's where it is. And it's, it's extremely sad to me to see this journey that we've followed Saul on for the past six months. It's sad to see all these, year late, all these years later where his last meal is served. Cover of night, 
royal robe gone because he's hiding. He's being tended to by a medium who just showed him his death the next day. I mean, it's really hard. Bible doesn't tell us. This is all speculation. But it's hard to imagine when he's laying on the floor what's going through his mind. And maybe it's regret, remorse, sadness. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us, so we don't know. But, you know, that's, to me, one of the most powerful things of this passage is to see where he began and to see where he ended up. And to see what, where life took him. To see what he did in life. And to think of maybe what life was like. You know, I mean, that's, that's the part that's so hard for me. I mean, some of you, you know, as we close, let me just let me close it up this way. For some of you, maybe like Saul, you've drifted. Right? You remember that first meal, symbolically, with Christ. You remember that first day, that first week, that first month, that first year. You remember the excitement that you had. You remember the joy that you had. You remember that kind of fearless attitude that you had walking with Christ. But lately, you kind of feel a lot like Saul. There might be some of you in here like that. You're just feeling like Saul. You've been looking for guidance. You've been looking for direction. It feels like God's not answering. He's not listening. He don't want anything to do with you. So now you've kind of shifted gears and you're looking for guidance. You're looking for a word from the Lord in all the wrong places. I mean, I've, I've been there. My, I told you before, my tendency, pray for a couple days, God doesn't answer, go do something else. Go find the answer myself, right? I mean, that, that is kind of human nature is to take matters into our own hands. David is about the most passive dude you're ever going to meet. David is just sitting in a cave. He's in, I mean, 10 years he's on the run and pretty much all he did is have a few fights, a few battles, and he prayed a lot and wrote a lot of psalms. You know, at certain points in first statement, like, David, do something, right? And he's like, no, I, I, I trust God. I'm not going to kill the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to reach out my hand against him because God has got this. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a really tough place to be. Let me encourage you this morning. If there are some of you who say, yeah, you know what? I've drifted. Or maybe there's some of you who say, I've never even had a relationship with God. The, the best thing to do, the best place to be, the best way to God or the best way back to God is repentance. That either it's repentance at salvation. We're like, I want a relationship with Jesus. I've never had one. I've spent my whole life going to mediums. I've spent my whole life looking for other ways. I've spent my whole life doing things on my own. I don't even know. I would love a relationship with Jesus. Repentance. Maybe you're walking with God. You're like, look, I've drifted. That Repentance is such an ongoing discipline in the life of a Christian. Sometimes we forget about it. We think it's something you do at salvation. But it's such an ongoing thing that you do. And if, if, we've, if we've studied over these six months, David and Saul, there's something I want to point out. We've seen a very distinct contrast between these two in a lot of ways. And here's the thing. It's not that one of them always does everything right and one of them always does everything wrong. It's that one of them consistently repents. Time and time again, right? One seeks the face of, face of God. When it seems like God is silent, instead of going elsewhere, instead of going to mediums, instead of going over here, instead of going everywhere, David gets on his knees and cries out to the Lord. Does God move in my life? So let me ask you a question. Which one are you more, which one are you more prone to? When life throws a curveball, which are you? 
you, you want to do it on your own, kind of ignore God, and if the last case, worst case scenario, okay, I'll go to God, or are you just one that the first thing you do is you get on your knees, you're like, Lord, I don't have anywhere else to go for comfort and peace except you, so I am going to you. And for some of you, maybe you're like, well, I haven't really drifted, but I know there's an area in my life where God has spoken, and God has directed, and I've ignored him. I said no. And maybe, maybe he didn't speak audibly, but maybe you were reading his word, maybe in your prayer life, maybe even meditating on scripture. Maybe you heard a sermon that was just like, man, it, 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 the Holy Spirit got you. You walked out the door like, man, I, I know this is where God wants me to do. I know this is what God wants me to do. I got to share my faith. I got to do this. I got to do that. And you got in the parking lot and somebody asked you about lunch and, you know, nine Sundays went by. And we, like we do, you just kind of leave it in the parking lot. Jake and I always talk about leaving it in the parking lot. You know, maybe that's you. Maybe it's just you know God is leading you in a particular direction, but you said no. Kind of like Saul, you're like, I, I don't know if I can do that. And maybe, maybe you didn't flat out say no, but maybe you're the person that just goes around and asks everybody for advice. Which isn't bad, but sometimes God has made it so clear, this is what you need to do, and you just want to go around and ask everybody else for advice. You're getting a word from somebody else. And let me tell you something. You can, let me tell you a secret. If you ask enough people, you will get the answer you want to get. If you ask enough people, someone will tell you what you want to hear. I know from, uh, from personal experience. You know, I, I was looking as we closed, I was studying through, like I said, mediums and looking through this. Most of the time, when you look at these websites, you look at these Instagrams, you do see what these people do, kind of this, this group of people. The people that go to them, all they want is a word of reassurance. They want to know that it's going to turn out okay. They want to know that life is going to be okay. They want comfort and peace. And I want to, in closing, I want to remind you that we have a word from God. We have comfort and peace through Jesus. We literally have comfort. We literally have a word. I like what John 1 says. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This, you want to know what God has to say? Look to Jesus. He is literally a word for you, a word for me. Everything about his life we can look to for comfort and peace and guidance and eternal life. Um, there's a point in uh, Jesus' ministry where he takes his disciples and they go up on this mountain, right? They call it the transfiguration. And they, the disciples go up and it's like they're getting a glimpse of what he will look like in his glorified state. They're just, you know, they, they describe it with the shining light. And I mean, it's right before their eyes. And interestingly, like Samuel, there are two people who are with him, Moses and Elijah. And, it, and the passages say that Jesus is basically conversing with them. He's talking with them. And if the disciples couldn't be any more blown away by what they're seeing and what they're hearing. And, I mean, Peter even says, let's just build huts here and stay here all, you know, forever because this is awesome. So if it couldn't get any crazier, Mark 9, 7 says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And notice how God didn't say, look how amazing he looks. Look at everything he's done. Look at all the miracles he has done. Like, can you imagine what he looks like? And the voice from heaven comes out and doesn't say any of those things. The voice says, listen to him. Listen to him. And I, I want to encourage you with the fact that God is pursuing everybody in this room. Everybody in this room. And it seemed, for some of you, he probably seems kind of quiet. 
You're like, man, I, I, don't, I haven't heard. You know, it's just, I, I just, I don't know. I just haven't heard from God in a while. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why. It just seems so quiet. And I pray and nothing happens and my prayers don't get answered. And I, I don't know. And for others of you, you're here because you couldn't be anywhere else. God is speaking so loud and just like, you need to go. And I'm wanting a relationship with you, drawing you into a relationship with himself. And he's like, this is where you need to be around a body of believers. So wherever you are, wherever life has taken you, wherever life is taking you, I'll leave you with three words. The same three words that Jesus said to those disciples. Listen to him. Listen to the word of God. Listen to Jesus. Let's pray.